been a packed week or two of despair and drudgery in our country and abroad. Today, though, I'm going to bring you some hope, and I'm going to challenge you to make a difference. I'm Fran McGarry, and this is First Online with Fran's There's No Place Like Art. You know, looking around and seeing how calloused the world has become can be, I mean, discouraging, yeah, at best. From, I mean, watching a video of Paul Pelosi being attacked with a hammer to then have members of Congress poke fun and make up obscene lies about the incident to the Memphis police body camp, you know, capturing the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols to young girls who are raped and refuse their right to an abortion to justify saving an unborn life. I could go on, but I won't. One of my favorite bloggers, John Pavlowitz, he wrote, it's a decidedly uphill battle right now to hold on to compassion when the momentum seems to be pushing against it. It would be much easier to surrender to the crushing gravity of hatred and be overcome by it. He goes on to say, you can very easily join the growing ranks of those whose empathy is quickly drying up, or you can choose to give a damn. A friend who listens to my podcast remarked how it's an awful lot of work to produce, record, research, and market each episode for a mere weekly outreach of 40 downloads. Nevertheless, that dedicated persistence has now garnered close to 11,000 downloads. You know, bottom line, it brings me joy. This is a project about paying it forward. It fulfills my need to use my creativity to open conversations and maybe alter the malaise that we face as a nation. My guest today, Cindy Cooper, she gives a damn. (laughs) She is an award-winning playwright, journalist, and author who believes in the transformational power of theater to open hearts and minds. Welcome, Cindy. Hello. I'm so glad to be here, and thank you for doing this. You bet. And I haven't seen you in so long. We go back a ways, and it's so good to connect with you. Absolutely. You know, I've read your bio and and all of the things that you've been doing. I mean, what keeps you going? You're kind of like that energizer rabbit, you know, that just keeps going (laughs) and going and going. Oh, my goodness, girl. I not only think it's our obligation to keep going, but actually I had a health scare when I was young and I realized like you just have to do it all while you can. I don't see any point in holding back, but finding ways to do things and take action and, and move forward. And, and that's the only way things are going to get better. That's been my belief for a long time. So where do you start? You know, how do you, with everything that's going on? Uh, right. You just yeah. came back from doing a, a show, a new play. 
Yes, I did. And, and that was about asylum seekers. But I think the way you start is by doing one thing. And that's a question we asked in that play about people seeking asylum and people help them is what can one person do when the whole system is corrupt? And it's not just in the U.S., it's in many parts of the world. The system of protecting people who are being persecuted in their own country has failed. And, you know, we know from the Holocaust how badly that can turn out. And that's when uh, systems of asylum were set in place. While people are working on changing the big picture, what can you do in your own world, whether it's advocacy, whether it's taking a small action like working at a food bank, whether it's doing some art that draws attention to it. I, I found a poem that I actually included in the play that I think, I guess I was drawn to it because it represented my philosophy. It's like to be a doer or a dreamer. It's really, really easy to feel disempowered. And I don't want to go in the conspiracy level, but, you know, there are a lot of people who would like to have us have progressive voices be silenced and women's voices be muffled, you know, to try and disempower voting and disempower activism. And I think that's it's a tempting route to go just to, like, be passive and do nothing. But that is going to allow the status quo, which is negative and damaging, to continue so if we want a better world, we have to kind of fight for it. That's basically what it comes down to. You know, one of the things you said to me was that we have to constantly be vigilant. Right. Well, that's a quote that the ACLU adopted, and I think they adopted it from a African-American minister in the 1800s. But anyhow, it's like eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And when we think we've won and we've turned away, the other side doesn't go away, you know, in reproductive rights, freedom. We had major victories. We, we turned things around in the 1970s. And there was a long period before that where we didn't, like 100 years, where we were stuck with the Comstock laws. So it was a long fight to, you know, win some freedom and rights. But the other side didn't go away. They didn't say, oh, we're done now. They amassed power. They are a minority in the reproductive rights movement. They're 20 to 25 percent of the people oppose abortion rights and reproductive rights. And that has not changed. Since 1907, what changed is they amassed power. They went to every election. They got single voters committed to this single issue. They captured the Republican Party, which probably wouldn't have had many voters if they hadn't like turned to cultural issues instead of sticking with their tax uh, freedom for rich people issues. And so we have to use that as an example. We have to build our own movements and, and and keep doing it, you know, and keep pushing. You know, one uh, of the things about what you're talking about is the creative process. And part of that process is to make a decision and say to yourself, okay, I may not be able to change the entire thing, but I can start doing this and make a difference in that way. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. It's like to stay focused. So many people like go into 20 different directions, but to stay focused on one issue and to make the difference that you can. And, you know, theater, I think, has the best opportunity to do that. I've worked in different kinds of, of media, you know, books, television, news, political arenas, but theater is the one area 
you know, aside from religion, where people are presented with stories and they hear them, they can see vicariously what can happen, they have a conversation with what's happening in their own experience, and they actually can change. You actually can see people making a change, making a transformation, making a new commitment to advocacy. And and that is so beautiful. And I don't think that happens with as much with um, you know, the other. You know, yeah. What is it? What is it about having that platform, that stage, that arena that offers you the opportunity to say, okay, I have something to say and I want you to come in here and listen to it? I think, like I said, you're having a conversation with people. They're there, they're thinking, they're interacting mentally. And in in film, let's say, as an example, as a, a it's you get the filmmaker's perspective. You don't interact. You might have your own thoughts about it, but you're not actually having a conversation, a mental conversation. And I think in theater, it provokes people to think about their own experiences their own maybe responsibilities or desires or dreams or things that they have put away and forgotten about what they wanted to do or how they wanted to be seen in the world. And uh, so I think it's a very unique way of communicating. You know, we saw in the AIDS crisis how much theater had an impact. Yeah. And, you know, and that's because they couldn't get heard in other platforms, but there are many people in theater and they use that as a way to communicate. And one of the pieces that actually influenced me, I'm in some ways self-taught, so I'm always learning from whatever I hear or see, but I saw a piece from Africa. I saw a woman came to New York from Africa, and she had been going town to town with a, a story about AIDS and how it was transmitted. It was a little family story. I mean, we might almost think of it like a soap opera. But it was a time to bring everybody together in the community and people came and they laughed and they learned. She didn't give a lecture. She told these stories. Yeah, that's the key is that these people have a story to tell and it's organic. You know, it's not scripted. That's your job as a playwright (laughs) to (laughs) to capture that feeling and translate it into a play. What's your process? process yeah as a writer you mean as a playwright yeah well I'm working on something new so I can say what it is I I do a lot of research and a lot of thinking and reading and before I write and I do that purposefully now I try not to write until I'm ready until I feel really immersed so I'm like a sponge Basically, I just soak in everything that I can everything that I see art and so how does the germ of an idea of a play make you have that decision. It's like, this is what I'm going to write about. Yeah. Well, that's the magic part, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I can't identify, but you know, there are certain things that interest me and there are certain topics that I'm committed to or that I, I feel a need to be heard more widely. And sometimes it's finding a collaborator also wants to work on that. Or I had this idea for doing walking tours in Manhattan, you know, and it was sort of a vague idea. I had no idea how you do a walking tour. What's And this was on reproductive freedom. 
So I just started casually mentioning it to people. I said, yeah, I mean, you know, they were in Hawaii. I said, yeah, I want to do one on reproductive freedom. But finally, I had somebody said, I could, I'd be interested in working on that with you. And she had done a lot of kind of arts-based uh, tours or public outdoor part performance events. And I just learned so much from her about how to do it. And now... She's no longer involved, but we still keep doing it. We, we've, you know, modified it a little bit to suit our needs. But it's a way of, it's kind of using theatrical modes to talk to people. Like every stop is not necessarily about the architecture or what's happening. It's about a story. So it's really finding where we can tell the stories that we want to tell. Can you share one of those stories? I'm curious. I'd like to know. This is reproductive freedom. So New York has a lot of history, but we, um, I'll give you two because one is classical. It's a story about Madame Ristel, who was an abortion, all services provider in the late 1800s. She was an immigrant from Ireland and there's been some articles and books and even a play about her. And she did abortions and she also had a maternity ward. She did adoptions. She had her own birth control pills, which were widely known. They were called Ristel pills. What? They were called what? Ristel pills. That wasn't her real name, but that was the name she took on. So, she, but other people had pills. They're all known as Ristel pills after her. She made a lot of money doing this, but she was also arrested by Anthony Comstock. So we have a site, which was one of her former locations. It's probably not the same building, but it's the address and you get a sense. It's in Tribeca. The streets, some of the streets are brick and all that. And you get a sense of you can imagine the time period and you can tell the story and people can ask what were the ingredients in the pills, which, you know, she made what? by hand. And oh my God. so that's one. But another one, because we go through time, is the first emergency hospital in New York. The building is still there. It's not a hospital anymore, but it's a really cool looking building because it has a bridge across it. And it's two buildings and one was the stables and one was the hospital. So we use that to talk about maternal mortality today mm. and how the United States is way out of range of all industrialized nations in its high levels of maternal mortality. And not only that, it especially affects the African-American community where the deaths of women in childbirth are four times every other community. So we just used the emergency hospital because we have some quotes from doctors at the time when a woman came in, when men came in, like they fell off a boat or something. You know, <laughs> women were coming in with pregnancy emergencies. Most of babies were delivered at home by midwives. But when there was sepsis or something that got worse, they had to come to the emergency hospital. So that's an opportunity to talk about maternal mortality in the U.S. That's a story we want to tell. And the hospital is a good place to do that. And these are all actual places. I mean, you did the research. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. It's tons of research. It's like oh, tons yeah. of research. And, oh, my God. God, it's exhausting just listening to it, but you know. I have one more. I have one more. At this oh, you got another one. Go. Yeah. Go. Yeah. I started with this one location. We're in Lower Manhattan. And it's the headquarters of condom, Trojan condom 
manufactures their original headquarters. And I was like, wow, you know, nobody thinks about condoms as being part of the reproductive rights and freedom world, but they are, you know, because they're birth control and they're safe birth control. Yeah. So that was the first site and it's the building still there. And I'm just, you know, love stopping by and talking about like how condoms are made and, and the man who first was making them there and how they changed with latex from cow's udders. Anyhow, so <laughs> that's all. That's awesome. So how do you, clearly you have a, a passion here. One of my favorite quotes is, passion is the wind that moves a boat, but practicality is the rudder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. You, you definitely have the passion, okay? And you're steering your course, but to what end? How do you make it happen? I'm a big fan of Anne Lamott and her book, Bird by Bird. It happens not all at once. It happens in stages and phases and planning and follow through. And if you want everything to happen all at once, you're, you know, probably end up in a mental institution. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, if you don't know the story, Bird by Bird, Anne Lamott, you know, amazing writer. But the story is her brother, when he was a kid, waited till the night before a paper was due on North American birds and he hadn't done anything. And so his father sat him down with a book and said, okay, you just start. And he said, but how do I do it? And his father said, bird by bird. Okay. <laughs> and that's it. You know, you can do two or three things at once, but to me, you know, you have to go through the phases just like play. How do you get a play up? You don't, there's the writer, there's the team, there's the acting, there's the rehearsing. Yeah, yeah, and you bring up a point that I always mention, and that is it's a collaborative art. And I view the theater as a, a microcosm of our society. You know, mm. theater people get things done through cooperation, through dedication, through a commitment, and through that device that we call drama and theater we can open minds and hearts yeah totally i saw a great graphic the other day so some idea but it was like a triangle with the top the pyramid at the top and the very very top you know one hundredth said work you see and the rest of the pyramid was work it takes right so Right. right Can you tell me a little bit about this play, this asylum play? You know, how did it go from an idea to an actual production? Okay. Well, it took a few years, but it's called I Was a Stranger Too. And it's about people are seeking asylum in the U.S. because they're fleeing persecution. And importantly, the people who are helping them. It features a woman who wants to help in memory of her family's history in the Holocaust, but doesn't know how to approach it, doesn't know how to get into it. And it is really confusing just to want to volunteer in that arena. I collaborated with a director in Minnesota and we got a little grant just to do the research. So we spent a year or so just interviewing about 100 people, organizations who were working in the area and as well as asylum seekers. And that was in Minnesota, but also in New York and California and New Jersey and you know, went to events and talked to people. And so that was just the absorbing. And we were supposed to do a production in March of 2020. 
<laughs> so, yes, you know. right. Yeah. But in Minnesota with a, a theater called Theater Unbound, and uh, it was just an excerpt. So I hadn't actually finished the play. It was the beginnings of it, and it was cast, and they did something for some fundraising thing. And then got canceled, and then the theater <laughs> folded. Oh. But I took that as an opportunity. I didn't know what it was that I wanted, but I wanted to start over. And so I took this opportunity, the pandemic, to go back and look at it again and refashion it in a way that I felt reflected the fullness of the stories that I wanted to tell. And it turned out to be a monologue play when I did that. And it wasn't exactly initially like Exonerated or Kennedy's Children. It's you hear nine different people. Three of them are recurring. And then two of them basically connect at the end. The woman who wants to help and, and a woman who is seeking asylum because she's had to flee uh, LGBT persecution in Russia. So within that, there are a lot of other stories of... Um, a lawyer who's going back and forth to the border and is trying to place a girl, get a home for a girl from Guatemala who's in detention in the U.S., but is going to be moved to an adult facility and is scared. So mm. you hear a whole lot about, you know, just in those stories. And then you hear this lawyer who is based on somebody I met who just has this great determination just in her you know, she says, we can't change the system, but maybe we can do one, help this one girl. And that becomes, I think, a theme through it. When I, when I was listening to the play, her, something else that character said sort of stuck with me when I was listening as an audience member, because she said, it's not just their reality, the asylum seekers, it's our reality. And accepting that in terms of this horrible immigration situation that we're in. People in Germany said, it's not my problem. Yeah. So it is our problem too. And um, that's what I wanted to answer is what could one person do? And I think you hear a lot of stories and we had some great speakers. What kind of um, outcomes from your work? I'm glad I did this because. Well, I mean, We've reached a lot of people. We provoked a lot of thinking. We got some attention. I mean, we invited people who we had spoken with to a session afterwards. This is just a really concrete outcome. We invited people who who we had spoken with to come, and, and this is a really concrete outcome. One was from a Christian-based ministry and ran some transitional housing for asylum seekers, and one was from one of the biggest temples and had just like come to think about sanctuary, but they also had some apartments. So the women who ran the Christian-based ministry said, we need have so many more people that we can't help. And on the stage, this guy who was from the temple said, but we, we have these apartments, so maybe we could work together. So that, you know, to me was like, just like the most beautiful thing. And they would have not even have met. They wouldn't have encountered each other. They were in different worlds. If, you know, they hadn't both come to have the same experience. They both talked about having the same experience with the play of understanding how, what it is to be someone who's traumatized and seeking a new home because they can't return. That's the key to theater is that it encourages people 
to look at the specifics. You know, like we talk about the immigration yes. system is broken, yada, yada. It's like, okay, but how can you give a damn? You know, going back to my intro, you know, right. you got to give a damn. You just can't keep mouthing off this stuff. Do something already. What drives you, Cindy? Where is that? <laughs> I just, well, you know, I work as a, a journalist and I, I just am an activist. I guess, you know, that's what it comes down to is the basic, the heart of activism is just wanting to do something and to make a change. And so I can't see sitting at home watching the flowers bloom because I think like I am a person, an intelligent person, I should be helping make this a better world. And that's what I bring for better or worse. That's what I bring inside theater, trying to make theater itself a better place. I think, you know, where we, one place where we connected is the voices of women, and sometimes that is voices of compassion as well, have been muffled in theater. And so it's also a fight inside the theater to hear those voices heard and to stop, I think, as a kind of a subtle discrimination that is perpetrated by our society that makes uh, women less heard and less visible. The only way to do that is to be heard and to be visible. I mean, you know, (laughs) by bemoaning it, you're continuing to perpetrate the violence. So I just encourage people to take one action, one thing that they can say, I can do this. I can do it once a week or once a month and to continue on. So that's the other thing, the endurance, the thing that we started with, with the ACLU and uh, eternal vigilance is our, these problems, the problems are going to keep pressuring us. Obviously we're seeing, you know, worse problems now, but we have to keep moving forward and advocating for change. Thanks, Cindy. And we will, we shall proceed. Excellent. Thank you. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by Mark Hare Media and recorded at WeChief Studio Productions. 